And now if you'll remain standing and open your Bibles to Revelation chapter 4. We'll only be looking at certain portions of this chapter today, and Lord helping us, we'll return to this chapter next Lord's Day. But I will read the whole chapter for us, Revelation chapter 4. Beloved, this is God's holy, inerrant, and infallible word to which you would do well to give it your full attention. After this I looked, and behold, a door standing open in heaven. And the first voice, which I had heard speaking to me like a trumpet, said, Come up here, and I will show you what must take place after this. At once I was in the Spirit, and behold, a throne stood in heaven, with one seated on the throne. And he who sat there had the appearance of jasper and carnelian, and around the throne was a rainbow that had the appearance of an emerald. Around the throne were twenty-four thrones, and seated on the thrones were twenty-four elders clothed in white garments with golden crowns on their heads. From the throne came flashes of lightning and rumbles and peals of thunder, and before the throne were burning seven torches of fire, which are the seven spirits of God. And before the throne there was, as it were, a sea of glass like crystal. And around the throne on each side of the throne are four living creatures full of eyes in front and behind. The first living creature like a lion, the second living creature like an ox, the third living creature with the face of a man, and the fourth living creature like an eagle in flight. And the four living creatures, each of them with six wings, are full of eyes all around and within. And day and night they never cease to say, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty, who was and is and is to come. And whenever the living creatures give glory and honor and thanks to him who is seated on the throne, who lives forever and ever, the 24 elders fall down before him who is seated on the throne and worship him who lives forever and ever. They cast their crowns before the throne, saying, Worthy are you, O Lord and God. To receive glory and honor and power. For you created all things. And by your will they existed and were created. The grass withers and the flower fades. The word of the Lord endures forever. You may be seated. Beloved, the Bible is a theocentric book, meaning it is a book that is centrally focused on God. It is a book where God has specially revealed to us who he is and what he has done. Now, there are a few occasions that are told to us in Holy Scripture where prophets were able to ascend up to heaven, whether in the body or out of the body, we do not know. Paul himself was even confused about this in 2 Corinthians 12. But having ascended into heaven, they were able to see the Lord seated upon the throne. Now, all of 
scripture is theocentric. But you don't get more theocentric than that. A vision of God seated on his throne as the Lord, the divine sovereign in all of his beauty and majesty. Now you can imagine how such a vision might change the one experiencing it. When Isaiah had this experience, he cried out, Woe is me, for he had seen the king, the Lord of hosts, Isaiah 6.5. And the apostle John tells us in the book of Revelation that he experienced this himself. And when he saw the Lord, that is, when he saw the risen and ascended Lord in Revelation 1.17, in that very first vision he had, he fell on his feet as though dead. Now, the prophets having such visions were expected then to convey them to God's people. Probably not the easiest thing to do. But they were, of course, inspired by the Holy Spirit, enabling them to do so perfectly. And the purpose of their conveying it to God's people was to change them as well. To transform them. The Holy Spirit is, of course, always involved in that process of transformation. And this, beloved, is what the book of Revelation is about first and foremost. John receives visions of God in heaven, and he is called to write down the things that he has seen in these visions so that we who hear and read them would be blessed. And as such... Transformed. Now, sadly, some people make the events and predictions or the prophecies of this book the central feature of it. But they are not. To be clear, there are prophecies of future events, and those are, 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 are very important, no doubt. But they are not what is central. God himself, the triune God, is what is central in this book. Our focus is to remain on him as all the goings on of future events are foretold. And that makes this fourth and fifth chapter of Revelation very important to us. You see, John is ushered up into heaven where he sees God in the heavenly temple seated on his throne. And this is significant because, as we will come to see, it is the place from where all the events that God has ordained for the future are issued forth from the throne where he is seated. And so, beloved, even if we fail to comprehend some of those events, some of those plans, if our eyes stay focused upon the throne, and more importantly, upon the one who is seated upon the throne, then we will continue to be changed and transformed because we will be continually reassured that God is the sovereign ruler and all is in his hands. 
That's life-changing, my friends. That's transforming. So let's get into the text here just a little bit. In chapter 4, verse 1, John writes, After this I looked, and behold, a door standing open in heaven. Now, John uses that phrase, those first two words there, after this. After this, I looked and behold a door standing open in heaven. He uses that phrase, after this, several times throughout the book. And he does so in a couple of different ways, as we will see in this very first verse. Sometimes he uses the phrase simply to indicate that he is seeing a new vision. That's what he's doing here when he says, After this, I looked and behold. He is telling us that he is receiving a new vision. And he'll do that several times throughout the book. After this, and then he'll begin to tell you or tell us a new vision. He is not, by that phrase, saying that this historical event will happen first, and then after this, another event in history will happen. No, he is not giving us an historical order of events. He is using that phrase as a structural marker in the book to indicate that he is now receiving a new vision. Regardless of when that vision takes place historically, it's the order in which he received the visions. And so the first vision he received began in chapter 1. And after that vision, he is now in chapter 4 receiving another one, in which he looked and behold, a door was standing open in heaven. And John says, after that, the first voice which I had heard speaking to me like a trumpet said, come up here and I will show you what must take place after this. There's the other use of that phrase, after this. And certain scholars have rightly pointed out that John uses the phrase here in this way to indicate that the latter days which Daniel discussed in chapter 2 of his book, have begun. That the latter days have begun. The latter days which Daniel talks about. And so back in the book of Daniel, and specifically in chapter 2, verses 28 and following, we read, But there is a God in heaven who receives mysteries, And he has made known to King Nebuchadnezzar what will be in, listen, the latter days. What will be in the latter days. And Daniel goes on. He says, your dream and the visions of your head as you lay in bed are these. Verse 29. To you, O king, as you lay in bed came thoughts of what would be after this. You see, he's using the latter days and what will be after this synonymously. The latter days were synonymous with what would be after this. And along these lines, Dr. Greg Beale writes, The phrase, what must take place after this, is a reference to the vision of Daniel 2, 28 and following, in which Daniel prophesies the latter day coming of the kingdom of God, which John sees as beginning to be fulfilled in Christ. End quote. So Revelation 4.1 then is telling us that John is receiving a new vision. 
in which he was called to enter into, the, into heaven through the door that was open to be shown what must, be, what must take place in the latter days, which have already begun in Christ. Now, he says that it was the first voice which he heard speaking to him like a trumpet, which called him to go up and to enter the door. It was that same voice that he heard at first, a voice like a trumpet, which he heard back in chapter 1, verse 10, where he says, I was in the Spirit on the Lord's day, and I heard behind me a loud voice like a trumpet. Now, whose voice was that? Well, it was the risen Lord, Jesus Christ's voice that he heard calling him. Now, notice, I want you to notice the similarity between these first two visions, at least the way they begin, uh, these two first visions. In chapter 1, John was in the Spirit on the Lord's day, and he heard behind him a loud voice like a trumpet. And now in this second vision... Here in chapter 4, he sees a door standing open in heaven, and that same trumpet-like voice calls him to come up and to enter through the door, and at once he is in the Spirit. Very similar to the first vision. And to be in the Spirit means to be in the realm of the Spirit, which is in heaven. At once he was in the realm of the Spirit, and behold, he saw a throne standing in heaven, and one seated on the throne. Now, there's a whole lot of teaching throughout Scripture on heaven being the realm of the Spirit. And I have taught quite extensively on that in Sunday school and in other sermons, we're not going to explore all of that now. I'll likely make a few remarks about it next week. But here's the point. John heard a voice like a trumpet telling him to come up. And once he entered the open door into heaven, at once he was where? In the realm of the Spirit, which is in heaven. And where he saw the heavenly throne room with God seated upon his throne. In verse 3, John begins to describe the one who is on the throne. But he doesn't give the details of God's appearance because God is spirit. He is without a body, right? He is without form. And so, as Reverend Allard taught us last week, we're to make no image of him. John is not trying to give us an image of who God is exactly. He's giving us a description in order to illustrate aspects of God's nature. That's the point. And in order to do this, he describes the appearance of God like precious gemstones, which essentially describe God's sovereign majesty and his glory. As the sovereign one sitting on the throne, the gems depict his wealth, his beauty, and his glory. In chapter 21, verse 11, uh, uses certain gemstones there to speak of the glory of God, and specifically one that's used here. And there, the glory of God is described as having a radiant appearance, like jasper, clear as crystal. So very similar to here. And so the jasper illustrates God's glory. 
And the carnelian, which is a deep red gemstone, resembles smoldering fire. Our God is a consuming fire, from whom, verse 5 tells us, flashes of lightning come forth from the throne, from him who is on the throne. And so what John is describing here, as he gives us these gemstones, he's describing the luminous splendor and majesty of God, who as 1 Timothy 6.16 tells us, dwells in unapproachable light. And this description of God is enhanced in the back half of verse 3. As John tells us that around the throne was a rainbow that had the appearance of an emerald. And the prophet Ezekiel's vision of God, in one of his visions of God, he brings the fiery appearance of God together with the rainbow. And we find that in Ezekiel chapter 1, verses 27 In 28, where he says, And downward from what had the appearance of his waist, I saw, as it were, the appearance of fire, and there was brightness around him, like the appearance of the bow that is in the cloud on the day of rain, so was the appearance of the brightness all around him. And so the rainbow adds to the radiant beauty and glory of God, but it also reminds us of the mercy of God, doesn't it? Because he gave the rainbow as a covenant sign that he would not judge the world again by flood. And so John is describing the luminous appearance of God who is radiant and glorious and majestic and who as a consuming fire is ready to bring his wrath against the wicked yet in his mercy restrains his wrath in order to give people time to repent and to turn to him in faith. Now, did you notice also down in verse 6 That before the throne, there was, as it were, a sea of glass, like crystal. And there is some relation here between the rainbow and the sea of glass. Now, there's a whole lot of symbolism with regard to this sea of glass that we simply don't have time to cover this morning. But let me just say a couple things about it. The sea in the book of Revelation oftentimes references the threat of death and evil. The rest of scripture, in fact, uses the sea in this way. And sometimes it is called the sea, but other times it's called the deep or the waters of the deep. Now, when God first created the world in Genesis chapter 1, we are told that the Spirit of God was hovering over the waters of the deep. And on that day, or excuse me, on day 2, the second day of creation, on day 2 of creation, God separated the upper waters from the lower waters by placing an expanse between them. And in doing this, God was subduing and restraining the waters 
in order to bring life and order to creation. So he separated the upper and the lower waters, put an expanse between it in order to bring life and order to creation. But those waters were still there. They were just restrained. And God could use them as agents of death and destruction in order to bring judgment against his creation. Which is precisely what he did in the days of Noah. You see, at that time, the world was in rebellion against God. And so he opened the floodgates, the expanse, the heavenly sea, and the fountains of the great deep burst forth, and all the earth was destroyed in the flood except for Noah and his family. And so the deep, or the sea, is used by God as an agent of death and destruction. And the rainbow, then, is the covenant sign that God would not judge the whole world in this way again. He restrains the waters of the great deep, the sea, in an act of mercy. Now, also related to the sea, is that God ordains and permits the dragon who is the devil, and all of his forces to come forth from the sea or from the great deep. And he allows them or permits them, ordains them even to do this in order to bring tribulation and death on the earth. In Revelation chapter 13, the beast rises up out of where? Out of the sea. And the Old Testament through and through presents the sea as the dwelling place of the dragon, also called the sea monsters, or sometimes Leviathan. Now, very interestingly, the Bible tells us of another historical event that illustrates the work of the devil who dwells in the sea. And that event is the Red Sea event in Exodus chapter 14. Now, they may not have been floodwaters, as we have back in Genesis chapter, chapter 6 and 7. But God did use the waters of the Red Sea, just as he did in the days of Noah, as waters of judgment against his enemies. Yet his people passed through them on dry ground. And then, having brought them through on dry ground, the very next chapter, Exodus 15, all the people sang to Yahweh the song of Moses. And I want you to listen to the way that Isaiah speaks of the Exodus event. In Isaiah chapter 51, beginning in verse 9. He says, Awake! Awake, put on strength, O arm of the Lord. Awake as in the days of old, the generations of long ago. Was it not you who cut Rahab in pieces? Rahab is the name of a dragon. 
Was it not you who cut Rahab in pieces, who pierced the dragon? Was it not you who dried up the sea, the waters of the great deep, who made the depths of the sea a way for the redeemed to pass over? Okay, so you can see here the way that Isaiah portrays Pharaoh and his armies as demonic, satanic. They are symbolically described as the dragon who was pierced in the sea. Now, what Isaiah is prophesying about is is the exile that Israel would undergo. And he's crying out in that passage for God to destroy the enemy like he did in the days of Moses. Essentially, he's asking God to provide for his people a second exodus. And why do I tell you all of that? Well, I tell it to you because the Apostle John has a vision of that second exodus. Later in the book of Revelation, John has another vision where he sees, again, the glassy sea. And in chapter 15, Revelation 15, verses 2 and following, he writes, And I saw what appeared to be a sea of glass mingled with fire. And also those who had conquered the beast and its image and the number of its name, standing beside the sea of glass with harps of God in their hands. And they sing the song of Moses, the servant of God, and the song of the Lamb. You see... How John is using imagery from the Exodus to show us what will happen in these latter days. There will be a latter day Exodus that Christ himself provides. God's people will pass through the glassy sea in which the beast will be destroyed. Very similar to the days of Moses and the people of God will sing in victory because they will have overcome him through the lamb. Now at the end of the book of Revelation in chapter 21 when John sees the vision of the new creation He says there that the sea was no more. There is no sea in the new creation. There is no more threat of judgment. No more threat of death. No more threat of evil in the new creation. Why? Because God from his throne will have judged and defeated. All his and our enemies. And that, beloved, is where our focus must continually remain. As we move through the book of Revelation, we need to keep our eyes on the throne of God. Just as we read in our call to worship this morning, God sits enthroned over the waters Over the sea. Psalm 29. 
You see, God is sovereign. God is mighty. He rules over all of creation, over all of the waters where the evil one makes his abode. He rules over it all. And as we move along through our series, if there are times where the events predicted confuse us, or even if we get certain details of it wrong, if our eyes remain on the throne, that is, on the one who is seated on the throne, then we can remain confident of where the book is going. For we know that God, who is the sovereign judge, has won the victory through the Lamb. And he will bring that victory to its consummation at the Lamb's return. That's the book of Revelation. Beloved, Christ has conquered. He laid down his life for the forgiveness of sins and he raised it back up on the third day. Just as we sang in the hymn of assurance, he gave up sapphire paved courts for a manger. And he laid down his life for the sheep. And he took up his own life and he ascended into heaven and he opened the door. Because he is the great shepherd. Who opens the door for his sheep. That they may enter. And that's why Jesus said. That's why he told his disciples in John 10, 9, I am the door. Uh, anyone who enters by me. He will be saved. Jesus of course is not an actual door. He himself is not the gate of heaven. It's symbolism. Not too differently from what we have. Here in the book of Revelation. Jesus says he is the door because he would be the one to open the door into heaven. The door which he called the Apostle John to enter. Beloved, when we die, our bodies go to the grave. But our souls already, even at that point, enter through that door and we immediately go to be with the Lord. Now, John himself only entered through that door in a visionary fashion to receive visions. In fact, he even saw the souls of those who had already died around the throne in certain visions. So he's, he, he, he has seen them already entered through the door and around the throne, worshiping God. But beloved, when Christ returns... He will call all believers to come up to him in both body and soul to meet with him in heaven. Paul tells us in 1 Thessalonians 4.16 that when the Lord returns, he will come with a cry of command with the sound of the trumpet of God. What is that? That's the voice of Christ. Which John himself heard both in Revelation 1 and Revelation 4. And then Paul, Paul goes on to say in that 1 Thessalonians 4 passage, And the dead in Christ will rise first, then we who are alive who are left will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, and so we will always be with the Lord. For those 
who are in Christ. And that is where the book of Revelation is going. It's where history is moving at the hand of our sovereign Lord who sits on the throne. Beloved, this is all of it extremely applicational. It is extremely transformational. Because as Christians who still face suffering in this life, we can be assured that God, the almighty king of creation, has sovereignly planned out the history of this world, which will culminate in the destruction of the wicked and the redemption of his people. You see, beloved, from our earthly perspective, the sea, from below, from the earthly perspective, the sea is torrential and chaotic and scary and terrifying. That is because we still encounter suffering and trials. But what was the sea like from the heavenly perspective, from where John saw it? Up through that door, it was calm and smooth like glass. And that is the perspective from which we must view the sea. From God's perspective who sits sovereignly enthroned above the waters. And in order to do this, we must keep our eyes upon him who sits upon the throne. When life gets crazy and you're tried and face suffering and you don't feel like you can get through the crazy storm that you're facing here below. You must keep your eyes on the throne. Not because this will necessarily change your circumstances, but because it will change you. In the midst of your circumstances. Vern Poitras puts it this way. When God's people are beset by temptation and persecution. A revelation of God's character and glory is the best remedy. His power guarantees the final victory. His justice guarantees vindication of the right. And his goodness and magnificence guarantee that solid redemption has already been accomplished. Even in the midst of trials and persecutions, God is still the ruler. He controls everything. To him be all praise and glory, now and forevermore. Amen. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we are grateful that you hold us in all things in your hands. We thank you for your mighty power, for your sovereignty upon which we can depend. And Lord, help us always to see life from that perspective because our feelings don't always equate with that. And we feel like we're being swept to and fro because of the circumstances of our life. And ultimately, because of what Satan brought into this world. Sin and death and evil. 
But Lord, you are sovereign even over these. And you are making and preparing for us a new heavens and a new earth. Where there is no more death, no more sea, no more tears, no more suffering. And you did it all through the person and work of your son, Jesus Christ. In whose name we pray. Amen.